Welcome to another episode of SDBC Podcast. Hey, Mary, we're having a fun conversation today. Mm-hmm. It's fun, <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you're tuning into this um, a while after it's released, then um, just for context, we I just preached um, on Sunday, May 7th, 2023. <laughs> uh, you can check out that sermon because actually it'll be very relevant to what we're going to talk about today. But I talked about shame and honor culture a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I did a long lecture. It was and I kind of warned our, our church family mm-hmm. that it's going to be a little bit more lecture like than than our typical preaching. But, um, yeah, I thought it was just important for us to pause and think about this thing called shame and honor culture, because we've I've mentioned it. Other people have mentioned it um, many times in our church. But mm-hmm. we, we kind of just spend like a couple minutes on it and then we move quickly to, you know, the rest of the passage. Right. So this time I thought we should really take some significant time and really dwell on it and delve into what does it mean to appreciate the shame and honor aspects of this culture in the Bible that we're reading. And Mm -hmm. this is in the context of Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame, the encomium um, chapter, but um, even outside of Hebrews and even outside of Hebrews 11, um, just understanding shame and honor culture and the dynamics there really helps us understand the cultural context of the Bible in Mm -hmm. general. So, Mm -hmm. And because there's so much to say there, not only did you talk about this on Sunday, but now we also get to use this episode to talk even more about it and look at it, I believe, through some other passages as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, obviously didn't have enough time um, Mm -hmm. on Sunday to really go even deeper, but I think we'll try to tackle some here. And if you're listening, this isn't the end all be all on this issue either. This is going to be, Mary and I are going to have a conversation around it, but it's going to be barely scratching the surface of this you know, cultural context um, called shame and honor culture. Um, before we start, though, we probably re- should recognize that um, I said this on Sunday, but shame and honor culture um, was predominant in the Bible's culture, not just in Christians, but in the Greco-Roman world, uh, in antiquity in general, in the Egyptian world that we read about, about Moses and stuff like that. Um, but that that culture still exists in other parts of the world. Mm. Right. In North America, in Canada specifically, we are more guilt, innocence culture. Um, I kind of highlighted that on Sunday, but uh, it doesn't mean we don't have any aspects or appreciation for shame and honor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it exists today. Like I was actually thinking about this. Um, when do I feel shame on a regular basis? And, you know, we can go deep and we can talk about some big shameful moments in my life, but I'll spare you my embarrassing moments. <laughs> um, but I thought even in the little moments, like um, when I go and pay, and uh, there's a person standing right next to me and then it asks me how much I want to tip. Tipping, yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like this um, tool that we use yes. to try to encourage people to pay more tip. Yeah. Right? yeah. Right? We shame people sometimes yeah. into, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting every store does this, um, but I know some people that actually feel really embarrassed and sh- shameful if mm-hmm. they don't tip. Mm-hmm. So they don't really feel like they should or they have to tip in a certain context. But because someone's right there and the machine is suggesting, do you want... You know, it used to be 10, 12, 15 when I was younger. 15, 18, 20. Yeah. Yeah. And and some other stores are more ambitious, I think. I think they start (laughs) like 18, 21, 24. It's like, wow, okay. Um, So I I think we still use shame as a deterrent for certain actions Mm -hmm. and to compel people into doing some other actions. Honor, like we give awards, right, at school, like the the most athletic student award or or whatever, like um, achievement awards of all kind. All kinds, not just at schools, but at workplaces and mm-hmm. in society in general, we still like to honor people, mm-hmm. right, um, in different ways. So I think 
It's um, an important thing. So you are saying that um, there's cultures right now that exist that are the shame and honor cultures. Yeah. And just for our listeners, can you specifically name any? Like, is the Korean culture a shame and honor culture? Yeah, I would, I would, I would definitely think so. Mm-hmm. Um, many Asian cultures are this way. Um, I've had lots of conversations with my friends um, from Chinese backgrounds, um, mm-hmm. and they would agree similarly. Um, um, they use phrases like "safe face" a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you go to these churches, Christian movements, and this isn't obviously just limited churches, but um, that's kind of the world I know. Um, so if you go to Korean churches and there's a mistake that the pastor makes, it's quite awkward and very rude and offensive to point that out in public. Right. So staff meetings look very different. Hmm. Um, they try to um, say the same things, communicate the same things, but you have to do it in a very roundabout way. Right. There's actually a good example of this. Unfortunately, it was a tragic event. But uh, Korean Air, it's an airline company in Korea. Uh, this is a long time ago. This must be like well over 20, 25 years ago. Um, because of shame and honor culture, um, it's very faux pas and offensive to call out someone who's in a superior position than you. Hmm. So there was a pilot. And then I guess there was a co-pilot. And um, the co-pilot understood that there's something that the pilot wasn't um, really aware of, that he should have been aware of. He was doing something wrong, I guess. I don't know that world as much. But um, this has become an illustration for leadership for a long time now. Um, so then he didn't call him out. And on the uh, black box, I guess, in the radio, in hindsight, they, they revealed that this person was trying to communicate in very roundabout mm. ways. Hey, you need to watch for this. This could be dangerous and stuff. But he never got direct with him. Right. And because of the shame and honor culture and not being able to be direct, they ended up causing an accident and lots of lives were lost. Mm. So from there on, the textbook way of handling this in the Korean culture and other shame and honor cultures um, for communicating in, in, in very urgent situations like that, um, they actually eliminated use of any kind of honor language and language of politeness and, mm. and respect. They just went to the most direct language you can possibly get um, in order to um, um, avoid situations like this when you're in a very you know, urgent situation. Mm -hmm. So I think Korean culture would definitely qualify. Um, A lot of Asian cultures, lots of um, uh, cultures in Africa as well. Hmm. Um, Middle East as well, of course, we're talking about the Bible here. And then um, some Latin American cultures as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's actually quite common. It's population wise. Yeah. There are way more people because, you know, China and India alone, uh, there's more population there than the rest of the world. So there are way more people in this world that live in shame and honor cultures even today mm-hmm. than guilt and innocence cultures. Hmm. And I think you said this on Sunday too, but as we just talk about the different ones, I think it's important just to make it clear that we're not trying to make a case for one above the other. Like no, they yeah. all have flaws and they yeah. all have pros. And even yeah. like you just said, even in a shame and honor culture, the, that Korean airline mm-hmm. recognize mm-hmm. that they need to be direct in that yeah. in that part. So I think it's it's just it shows how important it is to be able to understand all of them so that we can also, you know, try and um, mimic and even use some of these uh, values of the different yeah. cultures as well. Yeah, and I kind of mentioned, I quoted from ChatGPT's uh, yeah. answer to why, awesome. <laughs> why is it important uh, for us to understand shame and honor culture mm-hmm. in the context of reading the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. And again, this applies to more than the book of Hebrews, uh, the Bible in general, because quite frankly, the Bible was written in a culture of shame and honor. Mm-hmm. Um, so to not understand that cultural context would, would actually put us at a disadvantage when we're reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why the Bible is so um, complex to read. I, I have a lot of friends and a lot of people who go, Paul, the Bible is just so hard to read for me. And I'm like, hey, it should be. Mm -hmm. It's a document that was written like thousands of years ago 
by people from different language groups and different cultures and people who ate different kinds of foods, people who lived in different geographies. And so, of course, it would be difficult because it's not just reading a piece of literature. It's also you're trying to appreciate a different culture. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why Christians for the longest time have done things like Bible studies. And we call it studies because you do actually have to study the text. It's not going to come naturally to you. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're living here in the 21st century Western society. I mean, even today studying for it, I know we're going to be getting to a passage in Second Samuel, but mm-hmm. reading that through the lens of a shame and honor culture and all of the different videos we were watching to yeah. prepare totally changes the yeah. interpretation of that text as well. Even Jesus, Jesus's death and the significance yes. and his relationship with the Pharisees and the leaders yeah. and those um, nuances in that relationship there. It, it literally today I'm 27 years old and I'm reading this and I, I'm understanding Jesus's death, death and the significance of it in a totally different way, just yeah. by reading it through this lens instead of our own modern land. Yeah. And you've been to church all your life, right? Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's the thing. I think there's, the Bible is so deep. I mean, I don't think we can ever say we've mastered it. Now we don't have to study it again. Mm-hmm. There's so much that we can keep um, getting out of this living word of God. Um, so as we go into shame and honor, I think we should try to define what shame and honor were in the context of the Bible's culture, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, even when we say shame and honor cultures, like in Africa or Asia, not every country or culture would share the exact same definitions. So maybe we should have like a working definition for um, the biblical understanding of shame and honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of used this before, but um, uh, on Sunday I, I gave this definition, right? I think it's from Joseph Plefnik. Um, it's a publicly acknowledged worth, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's your publicly acknowledged worth. So it this is why it's so deeply tied to our identity. Mm-hmm. Um it's, it's what people confer on you as your value, your worth. So that is what honor is. And, and in, in shame and honor cultures, justice would be viewed as living up to the expectations of the community, mm-hmm. doing the good for the community. Um, and that would be honorable. Um, in a more guilt and innocence focused culture, um, justice would be really objective rather than subjective and communal and being conferred by a group of people. Uh, it would be more like, no, there is an objective right and wrong, a moral code or a law, like maybe a literal law in this case. Um, and if you abide by it, then you're righteous or you're honorable. And if you don't, then you're dishonorable, mm-hmm. right? So if you if you murder someone, it's automatically dis- dishonorable. Um, but if you, if you don't, then that's an honorable thing to do, right? Um, so I think some of the nuances are a little bit different, but uh, the gist of it is that honor is publicly acknowledged worth that was given by your community. Mm-hmm. And shame would be not able being able to live up to the standards or the expectations of your community. Right. So that would bring you shame. Mm-hmm. And and because it's so communal, um, your honor would have not only been uh, applied to you, if you did an honorable thing, it would be like an honor for your city or your community. Right. I guess we sometimes experience that here too, right? Um, like I remember Jim Paxson is a famous pitch, pitcher. I don't know him personally, but he's from Ladner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then all of a sudden, Ladner is now put on the map. Like, oh, look at that. He's he's one of us. <laughs> so he brings honor, I suppose, to our community. Um, and that happens quite a lot. And then there's also shame. Um, shame works the same way. If, if, you dis, if you do something dishonorable, then you not only in these cultures of shame and honor, you're not only bringing dishonor to your family or to yourself, maybe to the entire community in town. Mm-hmm. And that's why sometimes you would be 
um, excommunicated from the community if you brought great shame to the community. Hmm. Um, one of the things that struck me the most about looking at the list of differences between guilt and innocence like we are in the West versus mm-hmm. shame and honor was um, how I identity is constructed and how your identity yeah. is laid out. And specifically, um, I think they were saying that in the West, it's more about who you, who you are. And yes. I completely identify, like that's how yeah. we, that's how we create our identity yeah. here. But uh, if for shame and honor cultures, it said that your identity is well shaped by your community, but also about what people say about you. Yes. And when yes. I read that, I got this like almost anxiety feeling in my <laughs> chest, yeah. especially as a people pleaser type yeah. person, yeah. like imagining that my identity is just what people said about you. That mm-hmm. just feels like an immense amount of pressure mm-hmm. that feels completely, completely different. Yeah. And and we've recently said in the West that that's bad. Yeah. Right. People pleasing yeah. is bad. And yes. you, you don't have to please other people. You don't do it for the other people. You got to. And the Bible has both. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, to a culture. Jesus was speaking to a culture that was hyper aware of what others thought of you or said things, how they spoke about you. And because of reputation being like the most important thing in shame and honor, um, Jesus would say things like, hey, don't do things, don't do good deeds just because you want others to see it. Mm -hmm. So he would say things like literally, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Like when you do good deeds, when you're helping the needy, don't go out and just just do it so that you could get honor out of it, Mm -hmm. right? And, And I think that's because Jesus understood almost this level of obsession for honor and, and this uh, flight from dishonor or shame, right? right? So that was important. But then the Bible also speaks to people like us who think, you know, maybe a little bit more leaning towards, you know, we are who we are. We are who we, we, we choose to be. <laughs> uh, in our culture in the West, uh, not everyone, but predominantly that is huge right now, right? We get to choose uh, every part of our lives, our gender, our or everything is like, oh, I, I choose to be identified as this. Hmm. Um, and the Bible speaks to say, hey, no, that's not always true either. Um, the Bible actually does think uh, reputation is important. Uh, the Bible also talks about uh, do good uh, do good in the eyes of men, right? Um, so there's do, doing honorable things in the eyes of men is important. You can't just neglect that either. But also ultimately doing good in the eyes of God, right? And so we do have to actually consider what God thinks of us, mm-hmm. how he has made us and how we are expected to live. It isn't free for all. We don't get to write through the expectations. We Christians believe that the Bible actually has laid out clearly enough for us to understand uh, what God expects of us. And to meet that, we call it righteousness. And to fall short of it, we call it sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something that I was really thinking about, and it was funny because I was listening to a Bible Project podcast on this issue, mm-hmm. so Tim Mackey, um, but I was thinking this question, and they asked the question, and so, um, <laughs> the, but the question was, since the Bible was written in and to mm-hmm. this collectivist shame and honor culture, should we as Christians now be trying to like form our culture to be exactly like that, so it's more of like a transferable blueprint? Have we just <laughs> strayed so far away that we're trying to get back to this? And they were kind of saying, like, no, because yeah. even in that culture, um, what the prophets and what Jesus and everyone yeah. is teaching is seeking what God calls yes. honorable, like you were just saying, which is even different than yeah. that culture. It's even different than our culture. And so um, I think that's also another beautiful thing of 
learning about the Bible is even though it was a completely different time and a completely different culture, what God was saying was so counter-cultural. Yeah, Jesus was saying it was counter-culture even then. Yes. And it still is for us today and yeah. it's still the same call. And so I think sometimes we can get really overwhelmed by the fact that we don't know everything. And when you look at even one verse, it gets so dense, you can spend four yeah. hours on yeah. it. Um, which is true because understanding different culture and context takes a lot of time. Yes. But but the the hope and beauty and power of seeing that what Jesus was teaching and those fundamental truths are still just as true and needed for us today as they were yeah, back then. Yeah, and just as radical and countercultural, yeah. like you say. Yeah. No, I think it's um, it's always interesting to me that yeah, we we kind of sway the other way too quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes like we just talked about it before we started recording, but sometimes we get polarized into thinking either. Or our culture is the best. Everyone else is doing it wrong. Yeah. Or the other way. Yeah. Oh, everyone oh, else is terrible. doing it right. Our yeah, culture yeah. is the worst. Yeah. Right. And we need to learn from all the other cultures. Um, and I don't think it's like we live in a broken world is what we believe as Christ followers. And we are all in need of redemption and restoration. And God is on a journey to do that for us. Mm-hmm. And it's always a call to be um, more righteous and honorable in his sight and to seek his his um, affirmation. Really, at the end of the day, that he would honor us. And we'll, we'll talk about this later, but we, God is actually calling us. Like if you look at Hebrews 11, like I said, that was the context in which we talked about it on Sunday. But in Hebrews 11, he asks, um, you know, God asks uh, Abraham. That's what the author is kind of reminding people. God asked Abraham and Moses and others to leave everything that they knew, everything that they had in their community that would have given them honor, that would have given them access to living in life that is honorable. Um God says, leave all of that and then trust me, (laughs) trust that I will give you honor that is even greater than Mm -hmm. what your community or family or your job or your deeds or your conquests can give you. Um, And and just trust me because I will give you lasting honor. Mm -hmm. Whereas the honor that you'll find in all of the earthly things, they'll all go away. It's, It's fleeting at best. So I think the call to true honor is what the book of Hebrews is really all about. It's actually... Um, that's the way in which the book of Hebrews engages with this idea of honor and shame. Mm-hmm. That yes, the world has certain expectations of you, but that is not the only expectation. The greater expectation is to choose to do what is honorable, not before the sight of man, but before the sight of God. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something that Christians should ask. What does that look like? What did yeah. it look like to these people back then, like you say, mm-hmm. but what does it look like to us? Mm-hmm. So. Um, we should talk about, though, that um, shame and honor um, and guilt and innocence is more individualistic cultures mm-hmm. um, where, you're, like you said, identity is defined and conferred by the self mostly. Um, and shame and honor cultures exist in a communal or collectivist culture where um, the the identity is really given by um, people around you. Let, let, me, let me just read a quote that I read on Sunday because I think it's so helpful to understand mm-hmm. by a scholar named Joseph Hellerman. He writes, in the collectivist culture of antiquity, one's honor was almost exclusively dependent upon the affirmation of the claim to honor by the larger social group to which the individual belonged. So it's basically saying one can make a claim to honor, but if it's not affirmed by the larger society around you, whether it's your family or your community, your city, your nation, if it's not acknowledged and affirmed, then it means nothing. Your claim to honor just falls flat. Right. So you may make a claim to honor, but it has to be, I guess, a given a stamp of approval by the larger group. Mm-hmm. And that's why without that larger group, without that community, when Abraham leaves his father's house and country and community, then you lose that opportunity to find honor. Right. Right. And Moses, when he he chose to associate with God's people, which was a slave nation at the time, rather than being uh, 
you know, happy with the status that he had as a prince of Egypt, then he's actually leaving every opportunity to have the royal family of Egypt give you affirmation of your claim to honor. Hmm. You're leaving that and you're choosing to associate with slaves who could at that time not really affirm because they're not the dominant culture right. there. Right. Um, so this is why I think community is so important when we're talking about shame and honor cultures and leaving a home like like other biblical characters that had to leave homes. Right. Like like you, you look at uh, Ruth, for right. example. Yeah. And stories like that. That then or Jonah, too. Jonah, too. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it becomes quite dramatic and, and really a big deal. Yeah. Um, and, and it was always public. It wasn't just communal and community based. It was also always public. This is why the honor challenges that Jesus faces. Mm -hmm. um, one of the videos that I, I've, I've recommended that we watch, yeah. um, it talks about how in John, um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, suggesting that this was more private mm -hmm. and it wasn't like an honor challenge. So Jesus responds a lot more softly to Nicodemus's question than when other Pharisees come during the day in public to challenge his honor. Right. Because that would have been viewed as an honor challenge. And when Jesus actually defeats them, mm -hmm. um, we talked about zero-sum game uh, right. on Sunday, uh, meaning that honor was viewed uh, as a limited resource, right? So then there was a limited amount. So then there's only, let's say there's only uh, one amount of honor. So then if there's one honor here that's to be had, it's either Jesus takes it or the Pharisees take mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And it's a public challenge, so it's publicly there. So whoever wins this debate, whoever wins this argument theologically will take honor home and the other will take shame home, right? You couldn't both take honor yeah, home. It's very high stakes. Yeah, very high stakes. Mm -hmm. And this is why um, the Pharisees and the religious leaders at the time were so offended to the point of wanting to kill Jesus. Right. Because you think about like, we talked about this in a community group as we were processing it, like the Apostle Paul, for example, he runs around like crazy sharing the love of Christ and gospel of Jesus everywhere he goes. And everywhere he goes, people seem to want to beat him up to the point of death sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Um, he was very close to death a couple of times there. And then, and I think what's happening there is he's like, Paul's not doing anything materially wrong, right? He hasn't caused too much material harm other than we know that for, uh, for a fact that uh, some of the idol makers, like the silversmiths and stuff like that, they weren't able to have a good business anymore because right. he's converted a lot of these people to Christianity and Christianity <laughs> that we don't buy idols. Yeah. So, so other than that, like Paul's <laughs> not causing material harm. Mm -hmm. uh, quite the contrary. He's actually causing good in, the, in these communities. Mm -hmm. And yet people are offended, not because of what he's doing necessarily, but because of the message he brings. It's so offensive to them. And mm -hmm. the offense isn't like if someone's offended at what I believe or vice versa. It's like, okay, I'm angry. I'm upset. I don't want to hang out with you anymore. But in that culture, it's like, no, 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 you are attacking my honor of mm -hmm. my family, of my religious group, of my community. And therefore to protect the honor and restore the honor of our group, I must fight you now right? or end you, which sounds pretty brutal, yeah. but that's how it was. Yeah. No, I was struck by just learning that relationship, um, or the honor challenges and the relationship Jesus had with the Pharisees mm. and the reality that they they killed him because yeah. he took their honor yeah. and how, I mean, that's kind of what I was talking about earlier. I was talking about this kind of changed the way that I even view Jesus's death on the cross is because it, even that death that would have been like a normal style of execution yeah. was such a countercultural yes. death, even Shameful. in itself. Yep. Shameful. And also... Um, Jesus saying like, I'm not playing into these yeah. honor challenges. Yeah. I'm not playing into this yeah. almost like 
crutch or insecurity yeah. of this culture, transcending it even. And I, yeah, I really appreciated having my mind expanded by yeah. thinking about all this. Yeah. And as I was preparing for the message, I think the biggest thing that I really kind of landed on for me, and I don't think I did a great job, like actually communicating it because I ran out of time really. Um, but um, I think it's this idea, like going back to the zero sum game of the honor that not everyone, like the worldview at the time in the biblical view, it wasn't just about honor. Everything that was abstract, like love, grace, mercy, honor, shame, like all these things, they viewed it as a limited resource. Therefore, it was a um, zero-sum game. Mm. If one took more, the other had to lose some, right? You couldn't all just have more, right? You can't just print money and all just have right. as much as you want. Um, so then what happened was you have bought into this idea of a scarcity of grace, scarcity of love, scarcity of honor. Then what do you do as a society? Mm. Then you got to fight for yours. Yeah. You got to yeah. protect your own. You got to stand your ground. Yeah, and you're constantly running out. Exactly. So, so then I remember watching a movie with my wife. She taught this to her elementary school teach, uh, students. Um, it was a movie called um, "The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind." Uh, mm. It's based on a book, based mm. on a true story, really, um, in a country in Africa in the early 2000s. Um, and and what happened there was there was a famine, and then the village villagers in that particular village were they, they were just going destitute. And they had limited food resources left. And what do they start doing? They start fighting for it. Mm -hmm. Even the people who aren't really evil people or mean people, when they see that, oh, wow, there's only this amount of food. And if we don't get it, we're going to die. Then you start to fight for it. This is why the, the philosophy of the theory of survival of the fittest is so dangerous. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that in the Roman Empire even, right? So then... The scarcity, understanding that there is a finite amount of love and forgiveness and grace and all of this and honor means that we have to fight for our own. So what was so radical about the Bible and Jesus was that he was saying, it's not finite. I can give you endless love. Hmm. My love will never run out. My mercy won't run dry. My grace for you is way bigger than you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to fight for it. You can actually scoop it up and give it to other people. Rather than constantly taking. Mm -hmm. Because the honor challenge, the whole point of that was because it was viewed as a limited thing and zero-sum game, there was this constant challenge in life to take honor and not to lose it and to defend your honor all the time. And what happened was it, it was more of like me against you, me against the world, our community against the world kind of a situation. And I think that actually really is, is, is still happening today in a way. Mm-hmm. Because if we believe in, in scarcity of grace and honor, we'll live stealing and fighting one another for it all the time. But if we believe in the unlimited honor we can have in Christ, then we can live spending ourselves, or as Paul would say, pouring ourselves out to honor others mm -hmm. and to love others, to forgive others, to be gracious and to be merciful everywhere we go. Because we believe there'll be enough for us. And I think that was radical because remember, uh, I said this on Sunday, like Jesus goes around and he heals a bunch of people and he's like, Oh, make sure don't don't tell people. Now, right. there's other reasons to this, right? Jesus is timing yeah. the mystery of his mission until the right timing and all that. Which I have always been confused by that, by the way. I <laughs> yeah. thought it was super helpful learning that this is connected. To yeah. That. And one of the reasons why most scholars believe that Jesus did this is also he's like, because it's zero sum game, hogging all the honor was viewed as shameful, mm -hmm. ironically, because yeah. now you're just being selfish. Mm -hmm. Now you have more than enough. It'll be equivalent to like if I went around and I knew that all of you guys are hungry and about to die. And I had like two loaves of bread just sitting there in my trunk. And I go, oh, there's one more loaf. I'll just take it for myself mm -hmm. again. 
and then leave everyone hanging, right? So, so if you're trying to hog honor too much, it was also viewed as a negative thing. So Jesus is communicating, I'm not doing all these good deeds. I'm not healing y'all. I'm not like going and, and healing lepers and, and just doing some amazing things just so that I can rack up more honor points, right? I already have enough honor, right? Both in the earthly way, because everyone already saw, wow, Jesus is pretty amazing. Um, but also in a, in a heavenly and, and cosmic way, he had all the honor he ever needed. So he's not here to steal honor from us mm-hmm. or, or to rack up so much honor so that he can just be boastful. So he has no interest. He's actually really, he loves us. He's innately filled with honor. God is honor. Like, mm-hmm. So he doesn't need to fight us for it. That's not what his, what, he's, what his mission is about. His mission is actually to lay down some of his honor. Philippians 2 would say, right? Leave the throne and come and what? Um, die. Mm-hmm. And even death on a cross to emphasize how shameful, how low he had to go, how, how much honor he had to leave on the tables in order for us to come chase after mm-hmm. us with his grace. So I, I think that that understanding allows us to see, oh, wait, Jesus wants us to see honor in a different way, mm-hmm. not to steal from one another. And I think that learning more about Jesus and these sort of transcendent truths that we mm-hmm. were talking about is a really helpful tool to get us out of just being so immersed in our own culture or yeah. just looking at different cultures. And um, as I was looking at this, I just kind of had my mind blown by... Um, so we talk about the innocence, guilt, culture, the shame and honor. And then there's another one that's fear and and power, fear and power. And I was just thinking about it. And I was thinking about all of the, um, like the lines and the crucifixion account and the things that we say about Jesus. And we even say things like he made us innocent and that goes to the innocence, guilt culture, or that he made us shameless. And that speaks into the shame and honor culture, or that he's won the battle, which then speaks into the fear culture and just how, like how, omniscient and transcendent yeah. that that, yeah. that we then realize that because those are cultures that were happening then those are cultures that are happening now but the fact that he died for all of yes. those things and specifically naming them even like yeah. i don't know if it's a coincidence or what it is about like yeah. he made a shameless blameless yeah. spotless all yeah. of these different things that now speak into the challenges and the cultures that we all find ourselves yeah. in even today yeah he communicates in a way that uh, is understandable for us, mm-hmm. which is a great blessing. Mm-hmm. Right? I felt like that was definitely like a mic drop <laughs> moment of discovery. Really cool. Yeah. And, and and also like we, I think for us, we care about shame and honor. Like I said about the tips and stuff, like we, we really do care about shame. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be shamed and we also want to be honored. We want to be acknowledged and affirmed and publicly, you know, um, affirmed of our worth. However, the, the difference of a shame and honor culture versus us is that we care about it, but maybe to a certain extent, mm. uh, whereas uh, maybe a modern example might be, and this isn't too modern, but like if you watch samurai movies, you might know that samurais took honor very seriously. So then if you brought dishonor to your clan or your t- to your family, there would be this honor killing, honor stabbing, like mm. suicide basically, mm-hmm. um, to restore the family honor, you will take your own life so that your dishonorable and shameful act won't be applied to your community. And that was viewed as an honorable ending, right? Mm. And then in other cultures, there's things as uh, uh, brutal as uh, honor killings. If you've offended me and my family by, let's say, uh, sexually molesting my sister, Mm -hmm. then I will go after you and I will kill you because that is the way to restore honor in my family, right? 
So some cultures even today still take this very, very seriously. Mm. So when you look at it from this light, why were the zealots so offended, right? And why, why are the tax collector, like the fact that Levi, the tax collector, Matthew, um, and, and Simon, the zealot, being in the one group of Jesus' 12 disciples, mm. why was that so radical? <laughs> well, because they were that offended by shame and, and dishonor. Mm-hmm. They were that offended f- uh, for an honor challenge yeah. like this. It was pulling at the threads of everything that they yeah. based their lives on. Yeah, whereas you and I, it would be yeah. like, okay, if Mary has shamed me publicly, yeah. I'd be like, okay, I'm not hanging out with her again. <laughs> That, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna think I'm gonna go and kill you. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I hope not. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what I mean. Like we mm-hmm. take it seriously. I'm not saying we don't, but yeah. it was next level. Yeah, it was everything to them. Mm. Um, and and I think that's something that we must understand. This is our, if you don't understand that, I don't think you could really understand why the Pharisees and stuff wanted to kill Jesus, mm-hmm. not just arrest him, put him in jail, but like like totally. that extreme, right? Yeah. Um, we do want to get to a text. Um, um, I didn't have chance to go through this text. Um, but one of the fa- favorite texts for scholars to use to really illustrate uh, shame and honor culture in the Bible is Second Samuel 11, uh, David and Bathsheba's story. So listeners, if you have the Bible with you, if you turn there, and, and also Luke chapter 15, we probably won't have time to get to it, but Luke chapter 15, the prodigal uh, son story is actually a really cool one to, to study shame and honor. But today let's go to Second Samuel 11, chapter 11 and 12. To just summarize the story, this is... Um, uh, David's king at this point of Second Samuel, and um, instead of going to war, chapter eleven actually right from the get go starts to talk about something shameful for David. Actually, mm-hmm. it says, "In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rab- besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem." Mm-hmm. So right away, even like. Even the author seems to be throwing a little shade, yeah, right? Totally. Hey, when kings went yeah, to usually battle, kings do this, but Joab and servants and actually all of Israel except David went, mm. right? So it's um, it's it's setting the chapter up for a disastrous kind of reveal here, right? And then it goes on. We're not going to read the whole text, but in chapter eleven, you see that David actually uh, sleeps with uh, Bathsheba, Uriah's uh, wife. And then um, he, she she conceives a child, and then she sends and, and sent, tells David that hey I'm pregnant, and then David tries to um, get Uriah to own the baby, own the child, and just let it kind of slip. Mm-hmm. But then Uriah doesn't do it, and then David ends up setting Uriah up in a battlefield in a situation where he knows he'll be killed, mm-hmm. and so basically he plans the murder of right. um, Uriah the Hittite. And then in chapter 12, Nathan, the prophet, rebukes David and points out his sins. But he doesn't just say, hey, you sinned and you need to repent. He actually tells him a parable. And by listening to the parable, David says, oh, wow, this is horrible what he did. And and this person should not live. This person should die. And then Nathan says, that's you. Mm-hmm. And so he gets David to publicly acknowledge his sin. Okay. Um, but I want us to um, understand a few things here. First of all, this was a very public event. I think some of us uh, fail to recognize that when we read this. Definitely. If you actually read through chapter 11, there are at least eight times where there's a scene where uh, eight times, separate eight times, um, where David sends news to Bathsheba or David sends his servant to get Bathsheba or David asks a servant about Bathsheba or Bathsheba sends a messenger to David or uh, David sends a letter to Joab. So, like, 
there's eight times just in the text alone where other people are aware of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Nothing is in secret. So at the end of this story, it actually says in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. Like if, if, if he thought this had to be secret, maybe give it a little bit more time, right? Mm. They were just waiting for the ritual mourning period to be over. And as soon as that was over, he sent, brought her into the palace. Mm. So what does that communicate? Everyone knew this. Everyone knew this. The news spread from the city to the battlefield all the time. Supplies mm. are sent. Messengers are sent. News is sent back from the front to, to report, hey, how, how are we doing in the battle? So word was already out there mm-hmm. that David had done this thing. Which makes it interesting because then technically... Uriah probably would have already known yep. about it. Yeah, some scholars don't think so, but most scholars, I think, do. Mm. Um, it seems very strange how Uriah acts if he hadn't known about right. it. And, and there are some clues that, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure the video that we watched on, I think it's called Philosophy. What is it called? Oh, I can't remember. Inspiring Philosophy on yeah, YouTube. Actually, he has a great video or that channel has great videos on, on Shame and Honor. But... So they point out this um, this very simple phrase, right? David sent, in verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. Again, a messenger is involved. So clearly that person knows mm-hmm. w- what David is up to, right? Uh, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And even the way that he phrases that. In a shaman on our culture, saving face is important. So when the king asks you, hey, who is that? Uh, you can't just say, oh, hey, that's that's Mary, or hey, that's whatever, or that's, that's that's Phil. You can't say that because then you're suggesting that you know more than the king. Mm. So to save his face, what does this person do? He asks a question. Is not this Bathsheba, <laughs> the daughter of Eliam, the wife mm-hmm. of Uriah the Hittite? Mm. Right? So that's even the way that they phrase things in a simple question and answer Um the shame and honor aspect of this is embedded into their language, mm-hmm. right? Um, and of course, Uriah the Hittite being like a mercenary that's not even a true Israelite. Um, this person doesn't deserve a one-on-one meeting with King David, but he gets two. <laughs> he gets two one-on-one meetings. Something's going on. Something's fishy, right? Mm-hmm. And he knows. And Uriah doesn't respond well. When, when David finds out that, oh, wow, I got this woman pregnant, he actually gets Uriah to come home from the battlefield and he actually wants him to kind of just take ownership of this child, right? Go home and sleep with your wife and we, and this child is yours. Just consider it done. Hmm. But then um, Uriah actually responds very confrontationally. He says in verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to live or to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Hmm. He's throwing shade at David. He's saying, wait, every one of our people, our men, able-bodied men are out there battling for Israel. You think I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife? <laughs> hmm. And in fact, that's exactly what David had done. Yeah. He stayed back and slept with another man's wife. So Uriah is actually, he's keeping the standards. He's not saying King David did it, but because these are public encounters with messengers being involved, other people um, understanding what's going on, even though on the surface it looks like David didn't do anything wrong, 
Um, and remember the public nature of this. If the entire, and shame and honor cultures, if the entire community says you didn't do anything wrong, then you didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. So some scholars suggest maybe David didn't even really feel that much guilt, even right. though from yeah. us, I know. guilt and innocence culture, we're like, oh, he must be feeling horrible it's, right now. Yeah, it is so interesting because that's definitely how I've read it every time before is thinking that he was putting all those different things in place to like ease his conscience. Yeah. But that the, the authors of that video, I think, yeah. didn't specifically say that like he probably didn't even care about yeah. clearing his conscience. conscience. He just wanted to save face. Yeah, protect honor. Yes. Protect the king's honor. Yes. Right. And what's more important than the king's honor? If the king loses honor, the whole nation loses honor. Hmm. Remember, your dishonor brings dishonor to or shame to the whole community. Right. So then all these messengers and Joab and everyone who's kind of an accomplice in all of this, they're not maybe perhaps, in my opinion, they're not just doing it because, oh, it's the king's orders. I got to do it, even though I disagree. Mm -hmm. It's more like, well, yeah, of course we would help the king protect his honor. Right. Right. And Uriah is kind of fighting to protect his personal honor. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And he goes, no, I'm not going to go home. I'm not going to let you off like this. I'm not going to sacrifice my honor so that. So then this is actually for a lot of scholars. This is a honor challenge now. Hmm. It's the king's honor versus Uriah the Hittite's honor. Right. And, and and of course, the king being more powerful in this case, he crushes Uriah. Hmm. Right. And I think David actually thinks he got away with it. Or else when Nathan comes in and says this parable, maybe he would have been like, oh, is he talking about me? Yeah. But he has no idea. He has no clue. He doesn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. And then Nathan says, you are that man. You're that man that you just said deserves to die. So how come he ended up listening to Nathan? Was it because of Nathan's status? And that's what finally got through to him? I think so. Personally, um, the only person that could really get through it is uh, to a king uh, authority wise at that time would have been prophets. Right. right? Um, Because that's what prophets jobs were. Right. Mm -hmm. To convict the people. Remember, shame and honor. This is fascinating again, because shame and honor, if the public acknowledges that you didn't do anything wrong, then you didn't do anything wrong. That's why God sends prophets. And then the New Testament, I said on Sunday, he sends his Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. to convict us in our own hearts um, with his ways. And so Nathan actually convicts him. So he listens. But also, I think. At this point, his um, David has lost the honor challenge now, ultimately. Right. Now this is shameful. Hmm. Oh, shoot, God knows. Not that he probably doubted that God knew, but now it's in the open. God's own very official prophet, Nathan, mm-hmm. comes and tells him, God knows. Mm-hmm. And there's you did not do an honorable thing here. Right? And, and I think this is this is an interesting story to share the idea of this. Uh, honor and shame because David's in the place of power. He gets to control and manipulate who is honorable and not. Hmm. Even though objectively us reading it from the 21st century, guilt and innocence culture, of course, David does something wrong. Very clear. Moral code, (laughs) objective. But then there it's like, no, the society determines it. And therefore, if the society is corrupt, then it could end up in this until God intervenes with his prophet. Right. Hmm. So here's everyone working hard to save the king's face. Uh, and then Uriah becomes a victim of that, right? And, and I think this is so important for us to understand because um, I read a quote. Let me read it here, actually. Uh, I read a quote on Sunday by uh, David De Silva. He wrote a book on a commentary type of thing on Hebrews. And he talks about shame and honor a lot. He, he goes, each group develops strategies for insulating itself against the witness of other groups to alternative world constructions, including belief systems, and the alternative ethos that each world construction nurtured. 
The ultimate Greek defense, for example, was the ideology that all non-Greek cultures were barbaric, not just strange and foreign, but non-Greek, and therefore inferior, savage, in need of the civilizing influence of the newly dominant Greek culture. Hmm. So I remember studying classical studies, Roman and Greek history and culture in, in university, and, and I remember this. The Greeks would always just say, oh, of course they don't know anything. They're barbarians. What mm-hmm. would they know? Especially after Alexander the Great and the great power the Greeks and Romans enjoyed, because they didn't only enjoy military might, they also enjoyed cultural uh, superiority. Right. So they thought, they truly started to believe this is the best safety mechanism. As we become more multicultural, as we start to conquer more nations, their language, their religions are all going to come in, right? It's okay. That's good. As long as we're in the driver's seat to determine what is honorable and not. Hmm. Because if we get to decide what is honorable and what is shameful, then we will never lose honor. We're protecting our honor. Right. So this is the problem because then... Uh, like, remember when Paul is on trial once uh, with with the Roman uh, with the Romans, and then what happens is, um, oh man, I'm I'm forgetting the guy here. Is it Festus who says this? Uh, one of the guys in the series of trials mm-hmm. that he runs through says, um, "Wait, Paul, are you trying to like proselytize me in one sitting? Hmm. Are you kidding me?" Well, that's because the Romans and Greeks felt like their worldviews were superior. So to see this Jewish man bringing this Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, and pretending or, or thinking that he could convert me <laughs> in one sitting, that would be very countercultural for them because, well, these guys are barbaric, hmm. right? They're non-Greek. They're non-Roman. It's not worth listening to them. Interesting. And, and that's, that's that. so they hold the power. They're on, in the driver's seat for this, meaning whoever determines what is honorable and what is dishonorable holds power in society. I had a question. This all made me think about, because I know there's a lot of significance of citizenship yeah. and like Paul's citizenship and everything like that. Yeah. Does that play into yes. the shame and honor culture? Yes. And it's important that he's a citizen of Rome? Yes, because absolutely. Of, okay. Because then, then he's welcomed into, ooh, then he's he's also shielded from some of this. Right. Right. Whereas if you're just from a, a, a defeated country and you're a citizen of that and not the Roman Empire, mm. then like, why would we listen to you? You're not welcome into this forum to even have a conversation. Yeah. Right. Hmm. And, and I think this is this is why it matters so much. But like the power dynamics is fascinating because the Jews do the same thing. How do the Jews control and, and guarantee that their values will stay intact and not be watered down by foreigners? Right. Because mm-hmm. the Jews do that. The Jews historically have done that better than perhaps anyone else in the history of mankind. Wherever they go in the diaspora, they're able to hold their identity as Jewish people um, better than any other cultures. Why? Well, because if you don't abide by God's laws, right, if you don't practice and the values and abide by the values of the Jewish community, then not only can you be excommunicated, but you're unclean. Mm. <laughs> you're not just bad or wrong. You're, you're unclean, right? You're not fit for God's salvation. Imagine that, how much power that could hold over someone. Hmm. And what happened when the Pharisees started to um, corruptly use that power to determine what is right and wrong, right? What is honorable and dishonorable. Hmm. So it's almost like a power play going on here. And every culture has done it before. And sadly, the church also has done this Hmm. to determine what is right and wrong and to use that to put more people to shame and judge them, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's unfortunately been repeated over and over and over again. We're not just satisfied to be, you know, 
like to seek equality in society or to to see everyone treated fairly we we have this tendency as societies that we want to be the dominant voice who determines what is truly honorable and shameful mm-hmm. and christians right now are being forced in the fringes in that we used to have a strong voice in the center of society here in north america being able to determine what is considered righteous and not righteous what right. is honorable and shameful but now we're not so then there is an identity crisis mm-hmm. just like what the church of hebrews went through and i think this is why uh, the power dynamics are so important for us to understand because jesus says here's how i use my power and he has every right to determine what is honorable and dishonorable right but instead of judging people and sending them to hell all the time what does he do he saves people out of their shame elevates them to a place of honor even adopts them into his own royal family mm-hmm. people who don't deserve it people who should be kept out mm-hmm. lepers right tax collectors prostitutes everyone that has everything associated with being shameful mm-hmm. and never allowed into this conversation of honor greeks and romans would have called them barbarians jews would have called them unclean christians would have called them immoral right but jesus turns it upside down and says i will pay the price i will enter the place of shame i.e. the cross and i will bear their shame and give them my honor hmm. like that is the entire christian teaching mm-hmm. this is why it's frustrating when i see myself and our church or or any church um when we fail to do this when we make mistakes in this area this is the part this is what's at stake we're misrepresenting right. what jesus was doing and we're misunderstanding this game called shame and honor and we're using it to corrupt and steal and hog mm-hmm. just like everyone and else did power, yeah. yeah and gain power rather than using it to serve, elevate others, lift them up, mm-hmm. bring them closer to Christ, restore them, see them with this infinite view of grace, mercy and love that you can have in Christ. Mm-hmm. Rather than that, we see another version of scarcity of grace. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Scarcity of mercy mm-hmm. and scarcity scarcity of honor. And I think this is one of the many reasons why this this topic of shame and honor is so interesting to me. Mhm. like the Bathsheba story, the Luke 15 prodigal son story, all of this kind of mm-hmm. reveals what God is doing in all of this. Definitely. Cuz did you notice in chapter 12 Mary when cuz I asked you to read this, right? And yeah. um did you notice um the David's child dies? That's a, another podcast episode like that's <laughs> very complex. But uh in verse 13 of chapter 12, David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." Mm. Boom, uh, straight up. Yeah. You've convicted me. I I have sinned against the Lord. and immediately following that this is what it says in the bible and nathan said to david the lord also has put away your sin you shall not die mm-hmm. and there's still consequences heavy consequences mm-hmm. but that's just like garden of eden mm-hmm. right hey you've sinned greatly and here's some clothes to cover your shame david says i have sinned yes you have the lord has put away your sin though you shall not mm-hmm. die Lord covers our shame. I I hope and pray that that's what churches everywhere would do, including ours. Mhm. Yes, we have people who enter into our churches and yes, we're sinners. But the immediate action that God takes is to sh- cover our shame. Mhm. To bring us to a place of honor. So maybe we could be more like Christ. Yeah. And it's just so cool that we can learn that through 
a text in the Old Testament and yeah. be able to tie it to the Gospels and be able to tie it to our lives. And I think that that's why studying concepts like this, though at first glance it might just seem like a, you know, like a distant or far off or outdated history lesson. It's so relevant. Yes. It expands not only our worldviews, but our view of what the gospel actually means for us in the ch- tangible everyday. Yeah. So hopefully, um, listeners, if you, as you followed our conversation, we've kind of been all over the place. Yeah. And like I said, this is only the surface. There's so much, there's so many books out there that are We're brilliant. doing five other episodes on shame and honor. <laughs> oh, after we have the, all the other episodes done. <laughs> um, but no, I, I've enjoyed it. Um, Mary, hopefully as, as you've, you've, I, I've invited you into studying this more deeply with mm-hmm. me as we're preparing for this episode and, and, and whatnot. I hope you've enjoyed it as well, personally. Definitely, definitely. And Hopefully our people have enjoyed it listening. And just, um, guys, if you have any questions, always reach out to us. But mm-hmm. also, uh, if you want to dig deeper, there are resources out there. Um, and if you want to hear about some resources, we can send it your way too. So let us know. Um, but we'll see you in our next episode. And uh, we got a couple exciting episodes coming. So mm-hmm. stay tuned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.